0: You know, I'm always super intrigued by those black widow types like Betty Lou Beats. What you got for me this time, Jesse?
1: A jilted lover's rage ignites a fiery inferno that results in the most deadly mass murder in the United States in history. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder.
0: Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong with
0: sometimes devastating consequences. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show.
0: And as always, if you leave us a review and DM us, we'll send you some stickers. Yay,
1: stickers. (laughs) All right, Andy, before we dive in today, um, we just wanted to mention one thing to the listeners. It has gotten pretty crazy in the United States lately. And as you guys know, we're both pregnant and expecting at the end of February-ish, very early March, hopefully, hopefully. (laughs) Late February for both of us, to be honest. Yep. Um, We didn't want you guys to have to go without any new episodes. We wanted to keep bringing you the love murder craziness every week, even, you know, as we are recovering and bonding with our new babies. So that
0: means we are working pretty far ahead right now. Right. So just for example, you're hearing this the first week of February, but we actually recorded it the first week of January.
1: Yes. So, you know, obviously things have been pretty nuts. And that means if some crazy new thing in the world has happened recently and we are acting like nothing has (laughs) happened, it's because that thing (laughs) that happened is in the future for us. And we actually don't. It hasn't happened yet. That's why we're acting like it hasn't happened. We just wanted to address it because we don't know how much more insane the world can get at this point. And we would just wanted to let you guys know. And of course, we also wanted to remind you that we have some pretty awesome episodes coming up. And we're not gonna miss a single week, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah. And I think in general, our goal is to not talk too much about crazy current events happening in the world anyway. And to be here to provide you with love murder entertainment, you know, that you can escape to if you want to along the way. But just so, you know, yeah, <laughs> just so everybody knows. And absolutely, I think right now um,
1: it's it's nice to have some escapism. I know that I love it with, you know, the podcasts or books or TV that I'm consuming. It's great to have a safe space from current events sometimes. So with that being said, why don't we get into what has to be one of the most tragic stories we've ever covered. So normally on Love Murder, it is mostly the people in the relationship and their immediate friends and families that are impacted. This story is about one relationship gone wrong that devastates, you know, a community, hundreds or thousands of families and like, uh, you know, New York City and a nation by large. It is Probably the worst ripple effect I've seen from a breakup ever. Yikes! Yeah, this one's this one's a crazy one, and I'm really shocked that I hadn't heard it before. So I'm really excited to cover it today because even though it is, you know, a, a huge cautionary tale and it's a story about immigrants in New York in you know the late 80s and the 90s, it it is at the basis of it about love gone wrong, which is what our specialty is. So without further ado, while the rest of the nation slept, on March 25th, 1990, at 3 a.m., the street of East Tremont, the Bronx, were alive with lights, traffic, music, and colorfully cad partygoers. The residents were celebrating Punta Carnaval, the equivalent of Mardi Gras in Central America. Into the wee hours, thousands of Hispanic and Caribbean revelers turned out into the streets, bar or club hopping, finally heading home after a long and festive evening. One of those party spots was Happyland, a licensed social club that illegally operated as a nightclub, a small but popular joint that offered fantastic music, cheap drinks, and good company for the locals, a mostly Honduran, mostly Garifuna population. Garifunas are Afro-Caribbean people generally from Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Unfortunately, on this dark and deadly evening, more than just music wafted from the doors of Happyland. Shortly after 3:30 in the morning on the night of Punta Carnaval, people on the street began to smell smoke. Then they began to see smoke and flames billowing from the modest building. A party goer immediately ran to a payphone and dialed the fire department. At 3.41 a.m., the FDNY arrived and battled the blaze. After getting it under control, they assessed the damage. They were horrified to discover several charred bodies. The victims were all very young, black and Hispanic immigrants only in their late teens and early 20s, piled toward the door in a way that suggested they had been stampeding the exit to no avail. More bodies scattered the first floor barroom. Soon the count rose to 19. It wasn't until the firefighters ascended the staircase to the second floor and the smoke had been cleared from the small room that they understood the true horror and magnitude of the tragedy. The club was swamped with dead bodies, in some places, four deep. Bodies belonging to underage kids, many of the victims' children and teenage girls all dressed in their best party clothes. Hardened FDNY officers vomited, cried, or let a prayer escape from their lips. Later, when questioned by the press, they had a difficult time articulating the extent of the nightmare. Pompeii? Hiroshima? A Nazi gas chamber were some of the comparisons they drew, In that small, dimly lit, smoky room, 69 bodies were frozen in place, never to dance or sing or love or laugh ever again.
0: Oh, my God.
1: It's horrifying. When all the carnage was discovered, 87 people were found to have lost their lives in the flames. Whoa. Isn't that crazy?
0: So sad.
1: It's so sad. And to put that in context, to this date at this recording, the deadliest mass shooting in the United States has been uh, the Las Vegas massacre. And that claimed 58 lives.
0: Oh my God. I didn't know. I thought it was like over a hundred.
1: Well, it was like 800 people were injured, but only 59 died. Okay. I mean, it's ridiculous. We're saying only 58. 58 That's an insane amount of people to die. Yeah. But this shockingly little known event that we're going to talk about today, the Happy Land Fire, ended up claiming nearly 30 more lives than the Las Vegas Massacre. Wow. Which is so crazy. And it was all due to the vengeful and murderous actions of one jilted lover. This is the case of one heartbreak that caused destruction and annihilation so profound that it rippled out to tear the hearts out of millions more in the fiery aftermath. This is the story of the pathetic arsonist, Julio Gonzalez, and the beautiful lives he stole that tragic Punta Carnaval night. So let's talk about Julio Gonzalez and his fateful love affair with Lydia Feliciano. Julio had a really tough life. He was born on October 10th, 1954, in Cuba. In May of 1980, he was 26, and he had spent much of his young life in prison after deserting the Cuban army, and he was desperately seeking a way out. Three years after his release from jail, he was actively trying to get back in, which I will explain to you with help from our source material, Happy Land, A Lover's Revenge by O.J. um, which is a woman, and O.J. did a fantastic job really bringing this Unbelievable tragedy and crime to light um through the pages. It's actually a very quick read. It's also on Audible. I highly recommend. I'm gonna use a couple different sections because there was like areas where I was reading the story and I was like, okay, I can't say it as well. <laughs> she can. I'm gonna use a quote from the book. So uh this is the first quote I'm using, and this is just telling us a little bit about. Uh, where Julio grew up and what his circumstances were and why he was so desperate to leave and also, you know, what communist Cuba looked like in 1980, of course. So yes, like I said, he was actively trying to get back into prison at this point. He had heard rumors from his countrymen that the government were releasing people convicted of serious criminal offenses from prison and sending them on boats to the United States. It sounded crazy. Why would Castro round up criminals from his jails, let them out when they hadn't served out their sentences, and then reward them with passage to the United States? But that, people told him, was exactly what was happening. In April of 1980, Gonzalez heard the tales from the front lines of an exploding crisis. Cuban asylum seekers crashed a bus through the gates of the Peruvian embassy. People just like him, people who were desperate to leave after years of a stagnating economy, food shortages, and housing shortages. Meanwhile, some Cubans had returned to the island from America bringing money, shiny appliances, and tales of a life of comparative freedom, wealth, and privilege. Now, of course, everyone wanted a piece of that. At the embassy, the Cuban guards opened fire on the asylum seekers. They killed their own people rather than allow them to leave. Castro demanded the release of the exiles to the Cuban government, but the Peruvians refused. And then a stunning about face. Castro had apparently thrown up his hands. He removed the guards from the embassy, leaving it unprotected. Within hours, over 10,000 Cubans had stormed the grounds demanding protection. Castro agreed to allow the asylum seekers to leave. And on the 20th of April, 1980, Castro declared that anyone who wanted to leave Cuba was free to do so as long as they left via the Mariel Harbor. But Castro had not thrown up his hands. His strategy was thought out and intentional. Suddenly, he was happy to rid his country of these people. They were a disloyal, undesirable human trash. He reframed his loss as a victory, a cleansing and purifying purge of his great nation. So Julio Gonzalez was tired of the army. He was tired of his poverty and aimlessness and he was tired of Cuba. He was married, but he hadn't seen his wife for years and didn't even know where she was. He had eloped with her on impulse one night after he was late bringing her home from a party. That, yeah, I think that it was one of those circumstances where she was going to be in trouble for being out with a boy too late. And he was like, well, we could just get married, like, to protect her
0: honor, I guess. Okay.
1: Dude, we've seen some wild reasons to get married on this show, but that has I to be mean, one of the craziest.
0: Yeah. And, like, did they go to a drive through Like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, late at night? Right?
1: I think that he must have just said, I'm sorry, I'm late for returning your daughter home, but we're engaged. <laughs> Does that make it better, essentially? That and no other reason was why they had been wed. They had stayed together for a little bit and he had had a young daughter, but you know, he had actually had to go to prison for deserting the army before. And I, I think he was like in and out of prison on some petty crimes. Um, so he didn't even really know his daughter and he was completely broke and he didn't have a lot to offer her. So he had nowhere to go and nothing to do. He was a man who had never really had much in life And a man with nothing is also a man with nothing to lose. Yeah. So he decided to get himself one of those one-way tickets to America. He went to the authorities and handed himself over for a fictitious crime, voluntarily signing a confession to drug trafficking. So he didn't do the drug trafficking. He lied and said he did so that he could get into jail so that they would send him to the United States. Yeah. So on May 15th, 1980, he was languishing in the tropical heat of his cell on what appeared to be just another day when he heard the guards yelling. He heard commotion, the shuffling of feet and the clanging of cell doors. He looked into the hallway and saw that the long awaited exodus was taking place. The guards weren't just letting the prisoners out. They were booting the men out of their cells and prodding them out into the world with the barrels of their rifles. The guards led the prisoners on a long, sweaty march through the jungle that eventually dumped them on the shores of Mariel Bay, the closest port to the United States. So Gonzalez waited, huddled among other exiles and prisoners, rapists, killers, drug dealers, and probably some guys just like him who lied to get into jail so they could get out. When the boats finally appeared, they were broken, shabby, barely seaworthy with spots of decaying wood. The men didn't even know for sure that they were going to the United States or where in the United States that they would end up, but anywhere was better than living in communist Cuba, they thought, and certainly better than prison, where occasionally prisoners were subjected to days without eating and consistently squalid conditions. Like there was a line in the book that they said that one person was like, at least I could eat out of a trash can in the United States where like we've been in prison and been locked up and had no access to food for almost a week at one point. Wow. Yeah. So things were not great. Many of the boats, overly full and lacking any safety precautions, would sink to the bottom of the ocean, the men on board lost and not mourned for. But unluckily for us and the 87 victims of the Happyland Fire, Julio Gonzalez was not one of those lost men. He arrived safely in Key West on May 31st of 1980. Gonzalez was then labeled a hard-to-sponsor refugee due to his extensive criminal record and sent for longer-term processing in Wisconsin and Arkansas until he was finally released in February of 1981. So that's a real long time. He arrived the very last day of May in 1980, and he wasn't released from being detained until February
0: of the next year. Yeah, that's, oh, wait, like like just a detention center, not prison?
1: I uh, Yeah, but the detention centers were kind of like prison because he had a prison uh, rap. Like he had a... Yeah, so it's not that long. A criminal record. You're- no, it's it's not, except for he didn't really do anything wrong. And technically, he like Castro had ended his sentence by sending him to the U.S., you know? But nobody knows for sure what his experience was or how he was treated while he was being held in the detention centers. But I can't imagine that it was very good.
0: So, oh, I don't think it have been worse than Communist Cuba.
1: I don't think it was worse than the prisons in communist Cuba where they they definitely uh, detailed some really horrific conditions. yeah. this is this is a really hard story because I don't have any sympathy for Julio insofar as he willingly did something that caused the deaths of so many people, Yep. but This was a hard life. This was not an easy experience. And it it seems like he took a lot of chances to try to make his life better and just ended in tragedy, you know? Yeah. After being released, he was sent to live in East Harlem in New York City with a sponsor named Juana Acosta, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. Ms. Acosta had only fond memories of Julio, whom she called her boy and he called her mama. She said Gonzalez was a very quiet model housemate who helped her with the groceries, never argued, and never came home drunk. He would stay with Ms. Acosta for a little over two years until 1984. During this time period, he found steady employment at a lamp factory in Queens where he packed lights into boxes. Eventually, the young man began to look for love and it was at a neighborhood beauty parlor that he first crossed paths with Lydia Feliciano. Lydia was nearly 10 years older than Gonzalez and the single mother of three children. She had lived in the United States for most of her life, and she was known as a vibrant, outgoing, and religious woman who opened her doors to her nieces and nephews and always let family members stay as long as they needed a place. Lydia, despite her piety, also loved nothing more than a good time and was a frequent regular at the local social clubs especially happy land where she worked as a coat check girl for about 150 dollars a night Lydia loved nightlife and the chance to mingle with her community
0: yeah there's nothing in the Bible about not being able to and not being able to party yeah I mean I guess like what religion though is that like dancing is sinful or is it just close dancing
1: That's- footloose the footloose religion
0: <laughs> and dirty dancing right
1: yeah there's <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's like inappropriate touch between people. Okay. I'm sure that like, like there's sexual there's some religions that are against alcohol, obviously, but I don't think I mean, I'm pretty sure she was Catholic, and you know, they drink wine at church, man. Lydia and Julio, who became long term live partners for nearly eight years after their first meeting, could not have been more different. This was like a real opposites attract situation. She was fun, flirty, affable. They said that she was flamboyant both in dress and personality. And she was like short and thick set. And they said she was like really cute, but it was really her personality that made her shine. because She was like yeah. kind of like a cute little dumpling size woman. Well, Gonzalez was quiet, silent, slender, and of average height. He was described as somebody who could totally like blend in with the crowd. He didn't stand out at all. Well, there was like absolutely no ignoring Lydia, you know? So yeah. it was a very much like she was the extrovert, he was the introvert, you know? The two lived seemingly happily and quietly for years. According to neighbors, they did seem quite content. There was never any yelling or screaming and certainly no violence on Gonzalez's part. Acquaintances described him as especially calm and stoic, which is really interesting because I feel like if we look at so many of the cases we've cut there's been like red flags the whole way and problems and violence in these relationships or You know, we talk about the histories of a lot of these killers and there's like so many events that you go, "Uh uh-oh. And there's just really nothing in Gonzalez's past, at least for all of the people who knew him, you know, during this period that he was in the United States and especially his community in East Harlem.
0: Yeah. I feel like we've had someone who has been stoic and calm and flipped the switch, but I can't remember who right now.
1: I, I do. I did write, it's always the quiet ones like you don't know
0: <laughs> yeah it's not ever like charming extrovert you know no no
1: I feel like there has to be there's like probably some serial killers like that like I think Ted Bundy but like no one we've heard so far yeah yeah um
0: but if you like met Ted Bundy now you'd be like fucking creeper
1: I know well that's the other thing is that when people talk about like Ted Bundy being good looking too it's like yeah, because you're comparing him to other serial killers, <laughs> like, like back in the day, and back in the day. Yeah, um, next like week we have, a, we have a really, really good story. Next week, I'm super excited, guys, and I know some of you really love the old fashioned ones. We're going back to the turn of the century, and um, yeah. yeah. and uh that one is like about the the woman who's like kind of in the middle of the murder story is like widely considered America's first supermodel and she's really cute she's really pretty but like she'd look like any normal girl these days you know our
0: standards completely have changed you know so funny yeah, so you get a bunch of plastic surgery back in the day to change. World, no, you so. couldn't. You couldn't just <laughs>
1: pop over to the doctors and ask for Kylie's lips there
0: <laughs> or Kylie's face. Yeah, <laughs> God, we live in a weird society. Yeah. <sighs>
1: Um, so back to Lydia and Leo over here. Yes, he was especially calm and stoic. Eventually, it seemed like the love connection wore down because Lydia began to suspect she didn't truly know her younger lover or his real motivations. Unlike Lydia, who is a staple of their West Farms in the Bronx community, as well as a legal resident of the United States. Julio never attempted to apply for permanent residency, even though he was eligible, nor did he learn English or try to integrate with the society at large. So she was very enmeshed in her experience uh, in the United States and with the United States and with specifically her community in the Bronx. Um, And he seemed always to be... Transient. Like, even though he had been with her for like eight years, she didn't feel like she really knew him. She felt like he wasn't really trying to put down roots. Like, there was something about him that wasn't truly there, you know? Yep. At some point, Lydia and Julio's relationship had become one of utility rather than mutual love or passion. He brought in his lamp factory paycheck and watched the kids while she worked nights. And he was provided with a roof over his head and the love and care of a good woman. A few months before the fire, trouble began brewing in their relationship. Julio lost his job at the lamp factory, which essentially rendered him a house husband. The two disagreed about the time Lydia spent out at social clubs. He even begrudged her job at Happyland. He accused her of working the job to meet with other men. She in turn was growing extremely concerned about the attention she felt like he was lavishing on her nineteen-year-old niece, Betsy Torres. Ooh, gross. Yeah, so Betsy, like a lot of her family members, was staying with them while she got on her feet. And oh, now that was
0: he, Leo, at this time,
1: I think he's in his early thirties. Okay. Yeah. Now that he was unemployed, he was like home all day with Betsy. Yeah. CPM. And. Yep. And Lydia accused him of making unwanted sexual advances towards her young relative. And apparently, according to some close friends and family, there was also a small concern on Lydia's part that Gonzalez had less than fatherly impulses towards her own children because her children were approaching teenage years also as well. Ugh. Yeah. So we don't, there's nothing proven. We don't know for a fact, even with Betsy Torres, we don't know if he like really made a move or what was going on. There was just, there was suspicion. And that was absolutely enough for Lydia to want to break things off. When women go through a breakup, they like eat a lot of Mm -hmm. ice cream and watch some bad TV. You guys, you men out there, you like murder people.
0: And <laughs> it's that ego thing.
1: It's like, well, yeah, it's like all of the family annihilators that we see are when they've lost a job, when, you know, domestic abuse situations, like when they finally leave, it's so dangerous. Yeah. Ugh, it's terrifying. Like I was making light of it, like eat some ice cream and chill the fuck out, but like it's really fucking scary. Yeah. His mama, Juana Acosta, had this to say about the breakup. He was so in love, Acosta said, and it was so sad what happened. Feliciano broke his heart by abandoning him. Acosta never said anything blatantly negative about Feliciano, but she seemed to not care for her much. She remarked bitterly of their breakup. I think she had other men. But it's like, dude, she broke up. She's allowed to date whoever she wants after they broke up, you know? Yep. Yep. So Julio moved into a rooming house at 31 Buchanan Place for $100 a week. The five by 10 foot room was furnished with a single bed, hot plate, sink, and a picture of Jesus on the wall. Neighbors and the building's manager described him as quiet, pleasant, and helpful. He was having trouble finding employment and paid his rent by begging and hustling friends, neighbors, and anybody in the Bronx who could spare a buck. Five days before the fire, Julio was seen attempting to reconcile with Lydia at the beauty parlor they had met at so many years prior. They kept their voices low, but Lydia clearly rebuffed him and Julio left with tears in his eyes. Most of the women in the salon felt sympathy for the quiet, heartbroken man. Little did they know the horror he would cause in only a few short days.
0: Yeah, like is that Miss Acosta's excuse for like what happened was that Lydia broke his heart? Oh, my gosh.
1: Wait till you see, like, in the aftermath of the fire, so many people are mad at Lydia.
0: It's such a double standard in So Far
1: It's up. a misogynistic trash bullshit is what it is.
0: Oh, that's going to make me so mad. It is. It's, it's, oil.
1: it's like kind of crazy what happens afterwards. On Punta Carnaval, the social clubs of the Bronx were packed beyond capacity. People and the sounds of merengue, reggae, Santana, Tito Puente, and Latino disco and house flooded the streets through open doors. I also tried to um, time this one with Punta Carnival. Um, and when I like originally looked it up, it says like some of the celebrations start at the beginning of February, and then they usually go through the end of March. So even though the story takes place at the end of March, I think that that means maybe some of our listeners are celebrating uh, Punta Carnaval this month. So cheers. And here's a really sad story about Punta Carnaval to celebrate, I
0: guess. What is it? Felicidades, Punta Carnaval? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry. sorry (laughs) and here you
1: go lo siento but yeah this was a really really fun time in this area of the bronx and there was a lot of honduran immigrants that were in this area and a lot of like families and friends and it was just like a perfect night that you would go out like all night and everyone is just having the best time you know yeah Happyland was one such place named for a popular Honduran term for the United States. But despite its name uh, and the music and the crowd and the drinks and everything that was like really cool, it it was kind of a rough destination as well, according to some witnesses. Every weekend there, there was fights, said 23-year-old Jose Javier. Another man named Julian said going there was basically a form of suicide. There were shootouts, knifings. And one time I was there, a guy pulled out a gun next to me and shot. I ran out of there.
0: Oh my God.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of like the wild, wild west out here where it's like really good time. Everyone's having a great experience. The drinks are cheap. The music's good, but there's like an edge of danger lurking around.
0: Yeah. But you might get shot.
1: But you might get shot. um, and also, there was no safety precautions whatsoever because Happyland was technically licensed as a social club, but it was illegally operating as a nightclub. And they didn't have any of the the safety precautions, which I'm about to get into in years to come after Happyland became the site of one of the most deadly and shocking tragedies in New York history. The club's name became steeped in a retrospective irony. Happyland was synonymous with agony, pain, and misery for those who had once laughed, smiled, danced with such carefree delight. Other than the sign, there were no hints that an active club was even in existence. It was sat back from the street and the management concealed the club's garbage amongst waste from nearby commercial retailers. It was only open on weekend nights when building inspectors weren't around. Club patrons were forbidden from loitering outside and the doors and the sole window were blocked and soundproofed. Happyland had no occupancy certificate or public assembly permit. To secure those certifications, it would have needed to meet minimum building standards that it most certainly fell short of. There was only one functional access door, which was also the primary means of exit. On the north side of the club's frontage, there was a service entry door, but it was not very much used and normally blocked off by a rolling gate. On the ground floor, there was a coat check area, a ticket sales booth, and a bar. The primary means of access to the upstairs area was a staircase at the rear of the club. There was also a narrow, very steep staircase, almost like a ladder at the front of the club, which was mostly used by the staff and DJs. The upper floor where the DJ's decks and dance floor were located was an unapproved addition to the building that had no windows and a ceiling height of barely over seven feet. That's so low. The club lacked alarms or a functional sprinkler system, apart from an outdated set of sprinklers on the upper floor.
0: Yeah, so many hazards.
1: This is a true disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. So nobody knows for sure if setting the fire had been planned in advance for Julio or if it was a spur of the moment decision made in passion or rage. I I think it's kind of both, as you'll see, and I'll explain as I kind of explain the night's events. Okay. We do know that Julio had already considered calling the police on the illegal operation, which... Happyland had actually been told to shut down almost two years prior, but neither authorities followed up on closing down the club for good, and nor did Julio decide to stick with his much easier and less deadly way to enact his rage on Lydia Feliciano. So he never called the authorities to get the club re-shut down. Instead, yes. on the night of Punta Carnaval, he drank a few beers and was seen attempting to speak with Lydia while she was working at Happyland around 2.30 in the morning. Lydia was behind the bar and spoke quietly with him for a few minutes before asking him to leave. Julio refused. And as Lydia made her way around the bar to go to a different part of the club, he grabbed her by the arm and refused to let her go. Mm. So she started screaming, like, let me go. Get lost. Get out of here. You know, I'm working. And a bouncer witnessed the altercation and he intervened and he escorted Gonzalez out forcibly by steering him by the shoulders. So. As the bouncer pushed Julio towards the exit, he turned his head up the stairs to where Lydia was standing and he yelled, you will not work here tomorrow. You'll see. I told you and I swear it. And after the bouncer physically kicked him out, he screamed at the bouncer, I will be back and I will close this place down for good. Uh, so at this point, I mean, you could still take those threats as he's going to call the authorities. He's going to get the club. Of
0: course, he you didn't know say I'm going, going to burn this place to the ground. Exactly.
1: So the bouncer told him to go home and sleep it off. And like, of course, immediately forgot about, you know, the easily forgettable man. We've described him as such. And as a bouncer at a club, you kick out one million people a night for like having one too many drinks and getting mouthy, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Gonzalez would not be forgotten or cast aside this time. He was broke, angry, heartbroken, drunk, a l- just a little bit. They they proved later he only had like three beers. So he might've been buzzed, but he wasn't like wasted, you know? Yeah. And feeling quite vengeful. Julio had nothing left to lose. He wanted to punish Lydia, the bouncer, the owner of Happyland. He wanted to ruin the shiny, happy couples who danced and celebrated within. With a black heart and a blinding rage, he walked a couple of blocks to an amoko gas station. Along the way, he discovered an empty one-gallon oil container in the gutter. So my feelings are that he was like scheming some way to get revenge and then he saw this empty oil container and he was like, maybe I'll get some gas and I'll burn the place down. So I think it's yep. premeditated insofar as he has to do the next few steps before he can burn the place down. But it was probably that night. It wasn't like something he had thought of, you know.
0: Yeah, but it's that's like it's still meditation like temper.
1: Yeah, exactly. So he f- he found this oil container and he asked the gas station attendant, who was a 23 year old college student named Edward Poros, to give him one dollars worth of fuel in the oil container. So Edward oh, you hesitated. Like
0: can't pay? Like you're having a hard time paying rent, and you're gonna like pay money to.
1: This is, he only had a dollar in his pocket. That was exactly the amount of money he had in order to Girl, pay for oh, nice the destruction that killed 87 people. Yep. So Edward, the gas station attendant, was totally kind of weirded out by the request. It was also his first day on the job. Oh my God. And he, he's working the overnight shift and this like random guy comes up to him and wants a dollar's worth of fuel in an oil container. So he was like, This seems weird. His gut instincts were like, this is off. Don't give him the fuel. Always listen to your gut. Oh my God. And he questioned, you know, Julio about why he needed the fuel if he was on foot. And Julio explained that his car had broken down a few blocks away and that he needed the gas to get it started again. Edward was still probably not going to give him the gas. Um, his training hadn't covered that possibility. And, and like I said, he just had a really bad feeling about it. But so unfortunately, they just, like,
0: brought him on to like work the first shift of Punta Carnival so that people could party. Yep. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yep. I mean, you remember what it was like in restaurants.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like get it's the new newbies to
1: do eat. all the holidays. <laughs> 100 percent but yeah unfortunately for the 87 people that would later perish at exactly that moment an acquaintance of julio's pulled up to the gas station and vouched for him with edward saying don't worry about it i know julio he's a good guy oh which is like the amount of like things that had to come together to make this tragedy happen is crazy this is one of those incidents So Edward reluctantly complied. He accepted the dollar bill and handed the fuel over to Gonzalez. And then Gonzalez approached Happyland once more, noticing that the entrance was quiet. It was now well after 3 a.m. And the patrons who had been kind of milling about outside when he was kicked out were now dancing happily and partying inside. The bouncer was nowhere to be seen, which is good for what he intended, you know. He's like, great. And no one was by the club entrance. So after like, there was like one part where people were like leaving kind of. So he like darted away and pretended to be on the payphone. Okay. And then after those people left, he came back and he stepped into the entryway and poured out the oil container, emptying the gas inside the door and on the bottom steps of the stairway. He then lit two matches and dropped them into the deadly accelerant. After that, he ran to the other side of the road to monitor his handiwork. And the Ugh. flames rushed up behind him. So Julio stood there on the like other side of the street, mesmerized as the fire spread to the closed service door. And then it went immediately, like poof, up the entire building's facade. Of course. Only a few minutes after that, somebody had called the emergency services and firefighters and EMTs began to flood the scene. I mean, the fire department was on this shit. They got there super duper fast, but the fire spread even faster. There was nothing they could do. So... You know, obviously when the firefighters and EMT started showing up, Julio got spooked and he left the scene. He waited for the number 40 bus home, like as if it was any other night. And while he was riding home, it seemed like his like actions finally hit him. He believed he had killed Lydia. He believed he had killed Betsy, who he knew had had been at the club that night. Like two people that, you know, with Lydia, he had loved her for eight years Lydia, he like, I mean, Betsy, he lived with. She was like family to him. Yeah. As well as like other numbers of people. This is a very tight community. Like he knew a lot of the people in the club. Yeah, exactly. And so while he was on the bus, he began to weep selfishly. Like he was weeping for what he had done, but he was also like still weeping for himself. Like what he had lost. He arrived at the rooming house at 4.15 in the morning and he knocked on his neighbor's door The neighbor's girlfriend, Carmen Melendez, answered and let Julio into the small apartment. In between sobs, Julio confessed to killing Lydia by burning the club she worked at down. Melendez later reported to the police she didn't believe him. You know, it's four in the morning. She assumes he's been drinking. She's like, you're talking crazy. You're drunk. You just had a bad breakup. Like, go home and sleep it off. So she did not think that he was legit at all at this point.
0: And it's the 80s, so there's no, like, social media talking about
1: them. No, yeah, this was 1990, but, like, 1990 is basically the 80s. <laughs> I always feel like the the uh, the zero is, like, basically just part of the last decade. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, like, 10, you know? It's, like, 1 through 10. <laughs> yeah. um, so he apparently heeded her advice because he went into his room and he almost immediately passed out. Despite his tears and supposed remorse, some detectives claimed Gonzalez's ability to sleep so easily after he had committed mass murder demonstrates a level of callousness. Detective Maroney, who later commented on the case, remarked that he and his team were familiar with the strange sleeping habits of violent criminals even after the most horrific crimes imaginable, these people would be able to fall asleep in the back of a cop car, at the station, during booking, et cetera. And I've actually heard about this before. Um, I was listening to Small Town Murder and those guys are big fans of um, The Homicide by David Simon book, which was the basis of the series, The Wire. Okay. Um, And apparently the detectives in that mentioned that they could always tell If somebody was guilty because an innocent person will like freak out if they're held in an interview room and like be up all night and be like trying to call people and being like, I'm innocent and like freaking
0: out about it and they can't sleep. But a guilty person like just passes out. So wild. It's like, I feel like there's a movie where that happens and it's like, because they're so all of their adrenaline and all of their like, you know, craziness has been expelled and they like just can go to sleep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like over yeah. with. The the yeah. crime is done versus I guess an innocent yeah, like, person
0: you'd would have be to be like, what be the fuck a am I doing? Sociopath to be okay going to sleep after killing almost a hundred people.
1: Yes. And I mean, in, in there's no defense here. He doesn't know how many people he's killed, but he based on his comments to his neighbor, he at least assumes he killed his yeah. ex-girlfriend. You're yeah. a sociopath if you've killed even one person, let alone almost a hundred, and you can just yeah. go to sleep, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's super interesting because I feel like when I first heard that information, I was like, I don't know. Like I feel like if you're innocent, you'd you'd be able to sleep because you'd have an innocent conscience, you know. But that's not yeah, true. You're,
0: like, detained for something that you
1: you did. didn't do is really scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile. Back at Happyland, though Julio was aware of what his deadly act had caused, he probably had no idea that he had in fact created the perfect arson, a killing machine that would seemingly require more skill and expert even than ordinary fire technicians. It was a perfect combination of neglect like on the cities and the landlords etc's part and cruelty on Julio's part that led to the deaths of so many that fateful night. O.J. Majesca did a great job illustrating how exactly the fire spread so I'm going to quote her here from Happy Land. The disaster unfolded as follows when Gonzalez ignited the initial blaze at the foot of the steps on the club's ground floor just inside the entrance. The door from the entryway to Southern Boulevard was open. The door leading from the entryway through to the ground floor bar was closed. The club's walls, both on the ground floor and upper level, were furnished from low-density wood paneling. Well, the ceilings were constructed from fiberboard tiles on the first floor entry and bar. Obviously, these materials are highly flammable with an effect like kindling when exposed to flame. Yep. That like cheap wood paneling. Mm -hmm. The fire rapidly spread through the internal finish in the entryway until the first escapees alerted by the smoke opened the door between the ground floor bar and the entryway to escape. This action opened a path for the fire into the first floor bar area. Additionally, the fact that this door had been left open allowed large amounts of oxygen into the building to fuel the fire. The fire then raced up the steps to the upper floor. The fact that the doors were left open was significant because this type of fire, you know, the one that ended up developing at Happyland was a ventilation controlled as opposed to fuel controlled fire. I mean, A dollar's worth of fuel managed to wreak all of this havoc because it was completely a ventilation controlled fire. He like literally lit the match, but it was the work of like the oxygen in the building that spread it, you know? Yeah. Meaning that it was the air available that determined the extent of the fire. And in this instance, the oxygen rapidly fueled the flames which in turn sucked the air right out of the windowless club's second floor, where most of the patrons were located. That's why, like in the intro, when I read that part about the second floor, those victims that the fire personnel discovered were in some case, were in some cases still clutching drinks. They had died not from the fire or even primarily smoke inhalation, but because they had suffocated.
0: Oh, God. The
1: fire had sucked the oxygen out of the room. Yep, yep. At the time that Gonzalez lit the initial blaze just inside the entry area, his ex-girlfriend, Lydia Feliciano, was literally feet away from him. She was standing in the rear of the coat check area just behind the entryway on the ground floor. Ironically, given that Feliciano was, you know, the principal target of Gonzalez's wrath, this gave her an advantage over others who would perish. She was the first to notice the fire. So that's the crazy thing. Lydia Feliciano would be one of only seven survivors of this fire.
0: That is insane.
1: Insane. The one person he was specifically trying to kill was one of only seven people out of the like 90 some people that were in the club that lived.
0: So crazy.
1: Mm-hmm. So Lydia began screaming, fuego, fuego, and three people were nearby because they were preparing to leave at the time. And they heard Lydia's cries. Uh, those three people were Roberto Aguerta, Orben Nunez-Galea, and Elena Colon, the wife of the owner of the club, Elias Colon. The three patrons panicked as the only entrance exit to the club was engulfed in flames Luckily, you know, Lydia being an employee, she was there to lead them to the seldom used employee's exit on the north side of the club. She showed them the way, but the group of four became desperately frantic when they discovered that the door's exterior metal gate was pulled down, preventing them from getting out. So Argueta managed to reach between the door and the gate to hoist open the gate sufficiently enough that they could push the door wide enough to squeeze through. Oh, this is so terrifying.
0: So scary. Okay, so
1: after Lydia got out, she feared correctly that the fire had been started by Julio and she was terrified that he might be like hanging around to finish the job like see her escape and then go to kill her so without like you know talking to anyone or telling any of the emergency officers like what she knew she just got into the first cab available and she went to her daughter's house instead of her house because she was also scared that julio would be waiting for her at her house potentially yep which is totally valid, you know? It's yeah. it's. I think she had a very serious fight or flight instinct and she flew, you know? Meanwhile, on the second floor of the club, Ruben Valadares was DJing when he heard a doorman screaming that the fire was racing up the narrow staircase. Ruben could see the glow and smell the smoke from his vantage point in like the DJ deck and immediately turned off the music and raised the house lights the revelers had no idea what was going on. They were completely confused and they thought like maybe it was a bust. They didn't know if the cops were there. Um, So he began saying like fire, fire in English, yelling into the crowd. And then like, it was a very bilingual group of people. So a lot of people were confused. And so then this other like one of the club's doormen, Philip Figueroa began yelling fuego, fuego. And then of course, everybody's like, oh shit. Okay, now they're like getting it that there's a fire going on. So people start panicking and Philip and Ruben were really close friends. So Philip, the doorman is like, let's go to Ruben. Um, And Ruben's trying to find, I think it was like a girlfriend or another close friend on the dance floor to get them to come with him. Uh, so a group had gathered at the top of the staircase when Philip starts going, because he's like, "Reuben, come with me. Ruben's like, I just have to find this friend. And he's like, okay, but hurry, because this fire is serious. And so when Philip approaches the stairs that are like the employee, like very narrow staircase, you know, a group had gathered at the top, but no one wanted to go down because of the billowing smoke and the heat that was coming from everywhere downstairs. So. Uh, Philip told um, O.J. Majeska about what he experienced here. Everyone saw me go for it. He said, I yelled down, let's go. Figueroa ran down the stairs, but he heard nobody coming behind. Briefly, he turned back and he saw the frightened faces of those who just moments earlier had been drinking and dancing and having the time of their lives they were far too scared to descend into the fire but he knew if they stayed where they were they were doomed there was no exit yeah, said,
0: yeah, the yeah there's no arrived.
1: there's yeah. no windows there's no exit there's nothing up there There were a lot of people around those stairs, but nobody followed me. I could hear all the cries, lots of people saying, Mama, I heard something explode like a light. Once down the stairs, Figueroa burst through the internal door, but stumbled on the other side and smacked down on the floor, dislocating his wrist in the process. On the lower floor, the flames were rising ominously, but he was able to cut a path through. The smoke was so thick that he couldn't see his way out. Trying to locate the exit, he instead crashed into the cloakroom and was momentarily disoriented by the sight of piles of coats and jackets. Backtracking, he found himself in the corridor that connected with the service entryway exit on the north side of the club, the same one that Lydia Feliciano had escaped through. Yeah. And then he said, like, I don't know if the gate fell back down or what, but he was like, in seconds, he was outside miraculously apart from the injury to his wrist he was relatively unharmed Ruben Validares was next and last to escape last of everybody to escape
0: and he said only seven people survived Mm -hmm. it was the
1: original four plus an additional doorman who I think was like close to the exit when it started and these two guys and that was it Jesus yeah Validaris ran down the staircase located near the DJ booth, the same one that Philip Figueroa had taken to the lower level. But by this time, because the service entryway door had been left open when, you know, Philip got out, oxygen was pouring in from the street, fueling the fire. Within That's the enclosed...
0: Because they need oxygen to breathe, but it's like also the fuel for the fire. It's, it's such It's, a,
1: it's so double scary. whammy. Yeah. You're totally boned in this situation.
0: That's so scary.
1: Within the enclosed entryway area, it now roared out of control and Validaris had no means of safe passage. His only choice was to run right through the fire, which was exactly what he did. Oh, God. I was talking about this with Nathaniel and I was like, it's so insane because you rationally know that the only way you're going to survive is to run into the flames. Yeah, but at the same time all of our biological instincts any human response is telling you do not go near that fire. <laughs> yep. We have to override our instincts to do something so unbelievably dangerous to save yep. ourselves.
0: Did he go fast enough where it like didn't catch him on fire or did he no. get burned? He got he burned. Got burned.
1: Oh, I went down and the only thing I remember is that I was in the middle of the flames in the mirror entrance and the only solution I found was to get into the fire and see if I could get out. Philip Figueroa was standing on the street outside having just burst through the door a moment earlier. He saw Validaris validares tumble out of the main entry door but at first he didn't realize who it was yeah so he didn't recognize because ruben's face was terribly burned and his entire body was covered with dark soot and ash philip finally recognized his really good friend through a distinctive set of gold chains he always wore around his neck oh my god He let out some screams, I'll never forget, Philip said. I ripped off his shirt, which was still on fire. His whole body was shaking. Luckily, you know, the um, first responders had gotten there so quickly that there was an ambulance and EMTs literally right there. And he was immediately, like Philip said, he like ripped his shirt off and he was there. And then he's like, and then immediately people whisked him away.
0: So yeah, I think like they didn't have that many survivors to treat exactly. I mean,
1: there was only bodies, so like thank God they got Ruben right away. He was immediately taken to the hospital and he was found to be horrifically injured. He received oh burns to over forty percent of his body. Jesus, when yeah. the doctors stabilized him, they gave him a fifty percent chance of survival, a flip of a coin for life or death.
0: Jesus,
1: uh-huh, it was bad, 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 bad. But Ruben did survive. He would end up being one of only seven people, including a doorman, Philip Figueroa, Lydia, Roberto Aguerta, Orben Nunez-Galia, and Elena Cologne. From Happyland, the book, here's the horrendous fate that met the rest of the patrons that terrible night. Now that the ground floor entryways and internal door had been opened, air poured into the building and the fire raged out of control. Once it had consumed the lower floor, there was only one place for it to go up. The blaze fulminated with a roaring whoosh became a devouring monstrous entity. It charged up the wooden stairs to the upper level. Those who remained in the upstairs room were now trapped with no chance of survival. A crowd was still gathered at the top of the stairs, hopeful for escape. As the fire erupted at the top of the stairs and burst into the space, they fled in terror, but there was nowhere for them to go. There were no other exits. There were no windows. The only way out was now completely obstructed by flames. The materials from which the club's interior had been constructed and furnished, woods and plastics, were consumed and degraded by the fire and now a toxic plume of smoke and gases poured into the windowless room. There was no air to dilute this smoke that contained high levels of lethal compounds, including cyanide, aldehydes, and carbon monoxide. So they're breathing poison at this point.
0: Yep. These poisons. I mean, when you said that the ceiling tiles were fiberglass, it's like, oof. Yep. Ugh, think about all the, and like in the, even in like construction. It was constructed, I think,
1: in the 70s. They hadn't done any like updates, 70s and 80s. These poisons can cause a severe asthma-like reaction, causing the bronchial tubes to spasm so wildly that they collapse. When there is an excess of carbon monoxide in the air, the body replaces the oxygen and red blood cells with carbon monoxide. The result can be a loss of consciousness, tissue damage, and death. Carbon monoxide is an especially lethal component of smoke. The gas prevents the lungs from absorbing enough oxygen to fuel the brain and heart. Carbon monoxide also blocks the activity of many of the body's vital enzymes. When the concentrations of carbon monoxide in a room reach a critical level, death usually results in about two minutes.
0: Oh my God.
1: (sighs) Ugh. The crowd erupted in a futile panic as the dense smoke poured into the upper level. Some club patrons fell to the floor, desperate for a gasp of unspoiled air, but it was not long before the smoke and gas filled every inch and cranny of the room. The victims now began to succumb to unconsciousness, staggering and tumbling into tables, walls and each other. There was no hope for survival, only for a few final seconds of love and comfort before the inevitable end. And so the people, many of whom were from the same families and tight-knit friendship groups, simply clung to each other where they sat or lay.
0: Yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? It's It's like like
1: when the Titanic goes down and it's the old people holding each other in bed.
0: Yeah. Oh God, I can't with that.
1: (sighs) (sighs) Within the space of three minutes, three minutes, everyone was dead. They didn't die from the fire. There were no burn marks on their skin and their clothes remained clean and sharp. They had died purely from the inhalation of smoke and gases and deprivation of oxygen. Dr. Roger Yurta of the medical examiner's office later said, if you consider together carbon monoxide poisoning, oxygen deprivation, and the effects of toxic substances in the smoke, death could in some cases be almost immediate within a matter of seconds. Whoa. Dude, I don't know what's worse. I guess dying and like being engulfed in flame would be worse, but this is insane. These people didn't have... They didn't have a chance at survival. They didn't have a chance no. to fight their way through. No. Just, it's like a gas chamber, just yeah. immediate extinction. The mass execution occurred so quickly that by the time the firefighters arrived, mere minutes after the payphone call, there was already no one to save, except for Ruben Valadares, who saved himself, you know? Yep. Yeah. As they battled the blaze downstairs, they just stepped over bodies trying to find anyone to help. They knew the upper floor would be hell, but they didn't realize how grisly the scene was until they ventilated the floor and the smoke finally cleared. Chief Kenneth Serretta said, As the magnitude of the tragedy was uncovered, it was so enormous, it was hard to fathom. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. Just the worst. Firefighter Dennis Devlin added, "It was just devastating. As soon as you would pick a body up, there would be two bodies under it. Some oh, of them were fused together from the heat."
0: Do you feel like if more people had followed Philip down the staircase, they would have survived? Or do you yes. think that? It, yeah,
1: one hundred percent. I mean, I think that at least like ten more people probably could have gotten out um, because yeah. there was a there was a significant gap between. When Philip went down, and when Reuben went down, and Reuben survived, even though he was badly burned, yeah, he, he but, did get out with his life. Would have
0: gone through when he first opened the door. He'd, he,
1: they would right. have if they had followed him down the staircase exactly. They would have gone through exactly when he went through the door, yeah. Yeah. and it would have been a very different situation. I mean, it depends on how many people followed him because yeah. the people at the very end of the line might have gotten screwed.
0: Yeah, you know, there would have been EMTs waiting outside. But there would too. have
1: been EMTs waiting outside yeah. and they could have really hustled. it yeah. It's that, that feeling, that fear, that gut instinct that tells you don't run into fire, you know, that is yeah. meant to protect us evolutionarily, you know. Unfortunately, there could have been more survivors, which is, this is the lesson. If you're in this situation, run through the fire. Yeah. The impact of witnessing the massacre cannot be overstated. Several firefighters were already displaying, like, on the scene, were displaying intense emotional reactions and signs of trauma. If they hadn't thrown up from the shock of what they had seen, they were reduced to wandering around in a daze, unable to speak, wordlessly removing human bodies from the club and laying them out in the street.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Happyland broke our self-belief in a way, one firefighter said. Firemen are the hero type guys. We want to help. We want to save lives. We want to bring back something positive from a situation of tragedy. This time, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't help anyone. It all just happened so fast. They had all died before we got there. And believe me, we didn't waste any time at all getting to that scene. So sad. It's devastating. So like all of those guys, obviously, uh, when when. It was triggered you know they say like what bell alarm fire it is or whatnot so they had like every firefighter in the area rush to get there because of the mass casualties so it's like all of these guys standing around being like we can't do fucking anything and all these people are dead like it's the worst feeling in the world for people who are trained to save lives
0: yeah i know it's horrible
1: oh As reporters and loved ones flooded the scene, hysteria and chaos reigned. Shrouded bodies were being piled up and frantic friends and family members were breaking the police cordon and attempting to approach the corpses. It was mayhem and grief set at the backdrop of the still-smoking club. Eventually, the entire operation was moved to a local school gymnasium so the medical examiners and police could finish their grim tasks of identifying causes of death and who the poor people were in peace. The accelerant was discovered pretty early on, and the tragic fire was quickly categorized as arson, the deadliest case of arson the country had ever seen. Lydia Feliciano went to the Bronx police station shortly after recovering at her daughter's home to report her suspicions that her former lover, Julio Gonzalez, had set the fire. Based on another tip from a friend of Julio's who had spoken to Julio around 9.30 the morning and again around 11.30 after the fires, the officers went to 31 Buchanan Place to question Gonzalez. On the landing, they encountered Carmen Melendez, the neighbor who had heard Julio's confession the night before. He was reportedly still asleep when the officers knocked on his door at 2 p.m. When the doors opened, the men were assaulted by the strong odor of gasoline. Wow. Julio had spilled it all over his shoes while dousing the entrance to the club it was abundantly clear that they had had their right man at this point, you know? Oh my God. Gonzalez agreed to accompany the police to the station. When he put on his gas-soaked shoes, the detective stopped him and asked if he had another to wear, you know, obviously thinking that this was a hazard. Gonzalez stated simply that he owned only a single pair of shoes. It's heartbreaking. At the station, he was read his Miranda rights in Spanish. And then through an interpreter, he confessed to
0: everything. Fuck.
1: Yeah. He was like, he told them the whole story about why it happened, about his ex-girlfriend, about the bouncer. And then he like apparently burst into tears. And he's like, I don't know. I guess the devil was inside me. That was like his excuse. Okay. Okay. All right, buddy. In the wake of the deadliest fire since the Triangle Shirtwaist incident had taken place, people wanted answers to how this tragedy had occurred. In a bizarre coincidence, both horrific fires had occurred on March 25th, 80 years apart. Yeah. You remember the Triangle Shirtwaist incident, the like industrial era crazy fire that changed all the laws? Yeah, that killed over a hundred people. They happened on the same date, uh, 80 years apart
0: so crazy. It's
1: wild. It's also my mom's birthday. <laughs> March 25th. Happy birthday, Rhonda. Your, your birthday kills people. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Though the blaze was unquestionably the fault of the jilted arsonist, it seemed the owner of the club, the landlords, and the city had to be culpable as well for failing to require the club to adhere to proper safety protocols.
0: Yep, I was going to ask about that.
1: Hmm, And this was a case of, I mean, other than Julio, of course, like it's everybody's fault, but it's also no one's fault. Everybody's pointing their fingers at the other person. The Bronx.
0: But one person poured the gasoline and lit
1: ex- I mean, we can all agree this is Julio's fault. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, during any tragedy, people want more answers. Like, how was he able to kill all those people?
0: Well, and ultimately, I think to prevent something like that from ever happening again, some sort of revision to safety precautions, you
1: know? Yes, 100%. The Bronx District Attorney said that the building's owner, Alex DiLorenzo, and leaseholders Jay Weiss and Morris Jaffe were not criminally responsible since they had already tried to close the club and evict the tenant. Um, Also, I guess Morris Jaffe was married to Kathleen Turner, the actress, during this fire, and she was interviewed and she like was completely unempathetic and was completely out of touch because she was like, it's it's like not a really big deal. This this could have happened anywhere. It's not his fault. It could have happened to McDonald's.
0: Uh, I don't think there's like 100 people at McDonald's at one point in time. Exactly. Um, yeah, I don't think that they're still married at this point.
1: So they had actually tried to close the club and they could prove that and they had tried to evict the tenant. The tenant was club owner Elias Cologne, who was scheduled to appear in court for eviction proceedings only a couple days after the fire. So the fire took place on March 25th. His court date to get evicted, the club to get evicted was March 28th.
0: Wow.
1: Yep. If the court date had only been one week earlier you know or if punta carnaval the celebration had fallen you know a few days after chances are that the club would have been likely shut down and the entire tragedy avoided
0: yeah i wonder that's like just seems i mean obviously anyone in the neighborhood would know that punta carnaval was coming up
1: yeah but i mean it's the it's the court system they don't care when punta carnaval is you yeah, know and they also you don't think that um a festival day that somebody's going to try to burn a place to the ground necessarily. There's no way to predict this. Elias Cologne couldn't be held legally responsible for the fire because he had already paid for his crimes with his life. Elias Cologne had been in the club as it burned, making him one of the 87 victims of the fire he was partially responsible for.
0: Oh, God.
1: That's tragedy and irony right there for you. Yeah. Even if Elias Cologne had survived to attend the eviction trial on March 28th, by that point, there was no building to evict him from. Immediately after the fire, Happy Land was demolished by the city. I mean, it was a burned out husk of a building. Eventually, a $5 billion lawsuit. Yeah, I was really against code. Take that bitch down. Damn. Eventually, a $5 billion lawsuit would be filed by the victims and their families against the landlord, city, and some building material manufacturers. The suit was eventually settled in July of 1995 for $15.8 a $163,000 per victim, which is just not enough. I mean, it, what would be enough? You can't put a price on no. a human life.
0: No, you can't. But I mean, if someone who was in there was the financial supporter of yeah. that needs to help at some point.
1: It's, I mean, it was necessary. It was supposed to be more. That's why they sued for 15 billion, but it looks like um one of the guys, one of the uh, landlords had been sued by other people and something had gone on. He'd like lost so much money that there just wasn't, and there wasn't like, you couldn't squeeze the blood from the stone at that point. Yeah. That was like the maximum payout. Was
0: who would even like, who will pay that?
1: Yeah. So how? that was the most money they could get. And there were, there was like tons and tons of people. If you think about it, it's like mothers and fathers, like so many people were left orphaned by this. There was like an occasion where like seven members of one family were killed immediately all together. Like there were situations where also like, you know, parts, of the family can't work legally. And maybe the person killed in the blaze was the only one who could legally work. Yeah. You know, there was no support for these families. Ugh. Ugh, it's, it's, I mean, this is what I mean with, it killed 87 people, but it ruined the lives of thousands more.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Julio Gonzalez was eventually charged with 174 counts of murder where two counts were extracted for each victim on the basis of both felony murder and depraved indifference to human life. One count of arson, one count of second-degree arson, and one count of attempted murder as Linda Feliciano, sorry, Lydia Feliciano was the intended victim of the blaze. At the preliminary hearing, all parties save Gonzalez's attorney were shocked when he announced his intention to plead not guilty. Because everyone's like, excuse me? Because you confessed to the police and we all know you did this. But the reason was temporary insanity. The devil? Mm -hmm. The devil got in him. The victim's families were outraged. As a result of his plea, Gonzalez was held in the psychiatric ward of Bellevue Hospital rather than a prison while he awaited trial.
0: Stop. Yeah. Stop. Yep. Meanwhile- Can you imagine being- a family member of one
1: of the victims, and dude, also wait till you hear his sentence. Let's just keep let's keep the Andy outrage level at like a yellow because it's gonna go to red real soon. Uh, yeah, you're gonna get real pissed. Meanwhile, Lydia Feliciano had become a pariah in the community. She gathered with the other family members of victims on Monday, March 27th, to discuss memorial plans and potential financial aid and was immediately accosted by the angry crowd. A small mob surrounded her, asking her how she dared to show her face, how she had survived when so many had died, if she had closed the gate behind her, as it was revealed later that during the fire, the service entry had eventually become blocked. Why did they blame her? There were many reasons, some at least minimally rational, others not so much. After the disaster, the people were drowning in a tidal wave of anguish and anger an excess of the tormenting emotion that they became eager to displace on any handy target. Yeah. What better target than the one who had survived when their loved ones were lost? There were claims that she did not do enough to alert others of the danger when the fire started, instead choosing to save herself into the hell with the rest. The fact
0: I mean, she, it's kind of like every man and woman themselves.
1: Yeah, and she film. did help, you know, those three other people get out.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's not she like- She just had an advantage point being in the cloakroom. Exactly. Like, oh, God.
1: The fact that she had disappeared into the night without telling anyone, the possibility that she- might have been afraid of her would-be killer did not really register or garner much compassion. And maybe the biggest reason of all, and this is from O.J. Majeska's opinion, was rooted in good old-fashioned sexism, and which I agree. There were those who said the whole thing could have been avoided if she had just gone back with Gonzalez or never left him in the first place.
0: And then... Real. There was, Listen, the whole community was
1: like, she should have just never left him and then all these I, died.
0: I completely understand like displaced anger and frustration from like losing someone and taking it out on whoever, but like to have to subject a woman to being in a potentially abusive or unhappy relationship. Or predatory
1: if she be... was ah, actually yeah. thinking that he was a predator towards her young niece or her children.
0: Yeah, that's sexist.
1: Uh-huh. Instead of placing the blame squarely on Gonzalez for acting on his murderous impulses, they blamed Feliciano for provoking him.
0: Unreal.
1: Unreal. Nowhere in this narrative was there any sense that a woman had a right to leave a man or break things off if she was unhappy. Instead, these critics bought into Gonzalez's own justification for his behavior. He owned her. He was his woman. I mean, even think about what Ms. Acosta said. which was after the fires, She said that, like, he was so heartbroken and I think she had other men. It's like, you're blaming her and talking about how sad he was about his breakup. I'm so glad that OJ brings that up. Mm -hmm. She brings up a very valid point. And it's, I mean, it's shocking. It is so shocking that she can say that after this event occurs, like, People get broken up with every day. You don't go and murder nearly a hundred people because you had a breakup.
0: No, that's so... And if you do, like, you you can't be the victim.
1: No, no, no. Following the disaster, columnist Jimmy Breslin spoke with an associate of Gonzalez and Feliciano, a guy named Jesus. Jesus said Feliciano was a troublemaker. She never should have told him to go away when he came to the club. Feliciano was so clearly in the wrong, he said, that people in the Bronx wondered why Gonzalez didn't just borrow a gun and shoot her instead of burning the club down. Exactly. Oh, poor Lydia. So she was just as much of a victim in this. And she also lost copious amounts of family members, friends, all of her co-workers, So she is grieving, too, and she's getting attacked. Yep, Things grew so heated that Lydia had to be enrolled in witness protection, escorted to and from court under heavy guard. Shortly after the fire, she moved away from West Farms altogether, a place and community that had been her home for more than 20 years. Julio Gonzalez may not have managed to kill her, but he stripped her of everything she loved, her home, her family, her job and her community. Wow. Tragic.
0: That is so infuriating.
1: hmm Julio's trial began in July of 1991. The defense used the excuse that Julio could not be criminally responsible for his actions because he was legally insane at the time of his crime. They argued that Julio was intellectually limited due to a low IQ of 79 and had suffered a psychotic break at the time of the crime due to extreme emotional distress
0: got to be kidding me. Yeah.
1: The prosecution was like, yeah, no. First of all, Gonzalez had no history of psychiatric episodes or breaks. They had attempted to say that he sometimes heard voices and saw visions, but absolutely no witnesses. People who had lived with and known Julio for years could remember any other incident where questionable mental health was displayed. And I understand with the caveat that especially immigrants do not get the mental health help that they need. And especially we're talking about like late 80s, early 90s. Like I 100% believe there's completely mental health issues that go under like undiagnosed. But even in those circumstances, usually, you know, the people that live with them are like, yes, I noticed that he was having a hard time. He was, you know, he was having voices. We talked about this or he had displayed any sort of, behavior. Distress, exactly. And nowhere in any of his history in the last decade he had been in the United States could anybody who intimately knew him even point to a a history of depression. Additionally, uh, the prosecution argued people who hear voices do not generally receive detailed instructions on how to act. In this instance, the defendant had acted in a way consistent with criminal premeditation, not in a rational or impulsive state of mind. Such was shown by the fact that Gonzalez had asked the gas station attendant for a dollar's worth of gasoline because he only had a dollar to spend. He had lied to the attendant about having a car breakdown when he initially refused the purchase. And he had waited for patrons outside the club to disperse before he went in and doused the entrance area with gasoline, which all shows that he was thinking rationally. If he had just been operating by some voices, he would have like stolen the gas, run down the street. He wouldn't have cared if anyone saw him. Yeah. So he was acting covertly and rationally, not rationally as we know it, but, you know, seemingly of a sound.
0: He said to Edward, Edward or Edwardo? Edward. The, Edward. Yeah, even, the, even the excuse that he said to Edward where he was like, my car broke down a mile away. Like that's, a, you have to like be. You
1: have to think about the lie yeah, that you're yeah. going to tell and try to convince this guy to give you. And what they were saying is that like, he wasn't just like insisting on random gas. He was like, I have $1. Here's my $1 for this amount of gas. You know, like he was seemingly rational.
0: Yeah. Lydia. In control.
1: Yep. Lydia Feliciano's testimony also cast doubt on the defense's key argument she told the court that Gonzalez tended to be a jealous individual and when he got jealous he got angry she described her altercation with Gonzalez at the club less than an hour before the attack took place and testified that he had issued specific threats saying you're not going to work here anymore I told you and I swear it Philip Figueroa also reported back to the court the fact that he had heard arguing between Feliciano and Gonzalez at around 2 a.m. when he entered the club and that he had heard Gonzalez threatening the bouncer shortly before the attack. You will pay for it. Taking up this threat of argument, DA Eric Warner told the jury it was clear that there was a specific motive for the arson and that made a mockery of the concept of an irrational outburst or psychotic break. It was not mental illness that prompted Gonzalez, but jealousy and humiliation over being jilted by a former girlfriend. Yeah. The defendant didn't lose his sanity. He lost his temper. He had enough intellectual capacity to know what he was doing. He was making very specific and clear threats. Hmm. Luckily, the jury didn't buy it either. After four long, painfully emotional weeks, the trial was concluded and the jury delivered its verdict after three days of deliberations. On August 19th, 1991, Julio Gonzalez was found guilty of 174 counts of murder, one count of first degree arson and assault. So that's also they said in the book that it was deeply satisfying because they read out. All 174. They're like, on the first count of murder, he is guilty. On the second count of murder, he is guilty. And like, just the whole time, the community was like crying with relief that he was being sentenced. Good. Sentencing occurred on September 19th, 1991. Judge Roberts awarded the stiffest punishment allowable under the law 25 years to life for each victim, which sounds shit. That sounds great. It sounds like a Fuck ton, right? Except New York State has a law that any sentence for an act committed during a single offense has to be served concurrently, not consecutively. Meaning that if you're getting 25 years to life for every person, if you were doing it consecutively, it's great. That means he's going to be in jail for thousands of years, right? But the law says that because it was only one event, he has to serve it concurrently, meaning he could get paroled in 25 years.
0: That doesn't make any sense.
1: I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But what they're saying is that he did it in one event. It killed all people in one event. And the law says that if you do it in one event, you have to serve all of your sentence at the same time. Because it was only... Then
0: why wouldn't they just increase the sentence?
1: It was the maximum allowable sentence under the law in New York State. 25 years to life for murder. At the time. I don't know what the rules were about the death penalty or what was going on in, you know, 1990 when this happened.
0: So if you murder someone in the 90s in New York, you could just get 25 years.
1: It's 25 years to life is what they say. You are usually eligible for parole after 25 years. However... They have an
0: intentional first degree murder. Mm -hmm. That's like baffling to me.
1: I know. I don't know what the current laws are, but this was whatever the sentencing was in September of 1991. That was what the laws reflected at the time. Whoa. The survivors and relatives did not care to understand the intricacies of the law. 25 years was an absurdly light penalty for the worst mass murder in American history. Most thought he deserved the death penalty, and barring that, at least life behind bars. Lydia Feliciano never attended any of the public memorial gatherings for the tragedy, fearing the aggression she had faced directly after the fire. Upon Happy Land's publication in 2020, Lydia was in a nursing home on dialysis and recovering from open heart surgery. Whoa. She said that it was sad that she could not join the community in their mourning nor share her grief with them. But the fact that she had been blamed for the fire when she was only trying to survive the actions of the man who was truly responsible made her feel less kindly toward many former friends and associates. So ultimately, she wasn't missing much as they were simply not the people she thought they were. She did not wish to encounter them again at all. Due to her isolation from the community, she has largely had to endure her suffering and recover from the tragedy alone and without social support.
0: Yeah, but if if that's going to be better than being ostracized and blamed for...
1: What are you fighting for? Like, what are you yeah. fighting to save? It's like, people are so terrible? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I understand. We, we've talked about this. They're hurting. They're a uh, hurting group of people, but like...
0: But you can't make her the scapegoat. Exactly.
1: Her. It doesn't, it, just because you have pain, like putting it on somebody else doesn't make it go away. It just passes it around.
0: No, it's horrible.
1: Philip Figueroa endured more tragedy after his remarkable escape and survival from the deadly fire. He was thrust into the spotlight at the beginning, even featured on the front page of the New York Times while battling immense PTSD and insomnia. Oh. Devastated and suffering from survivor's guilt, Philip eventually returned to his native home of Trujillo, Honduras. There, he barely eked out a living selling homemade maracas and knockoff wallets on the streets. Eventually, he heard he was entitled to $9,000 as a portion of the lawsuit payout. The catch was he needed to be in the U.S. to collect the money. His visa application was denied three times before he, in desperation, entered the country illegally and was caught, detained, and imprisoned in Louisiana for over six months. What? Yep, he said, I nearly died in prison. He still suffered claustrophobia and shell shock after the fire, and he was kept in a confined cell. Just emotionally and psychologically, what that does to you?
0: No, that's like...
1: He had such a good and valid reason to be in the United States and he had survived because of something a U.S. citizen was partial, well, a U.S. city was partially, partially responsible for, you know? Yeah. Eventually, while in jail, he received some of the compensation he was promised. Law firm Smith and Smith of New York sent him a check for $6,000, keeping $3,000 for themselves as a service fee. Guys, this is despicable.
0: That's disgusting.
1: Do you want to know why people hate lawyers? Y'all, that's why. <laughs> Come on.
0: Not all lawyers there's some lawyers who there's
1: some great lawyers but th- this is the reason why we have lawyer jokes. <laughs>
0: yeah. There's some oh my God, fan- it's so horrible. There's some
1: fantastic lawyers that are out there fighting for justice and we've covered some of them. We love some of the these lawyers but dude, the the money hungry ones like these guys it's just come on. It's disgusting. Philip was deported back to Honduras as just another unwanted illegal immigrant. His story then presented a number of ironies. As an online interview with Figueroa noted, Philip went from being a national hero on the cover of the New York Times to being another deported Honduran resigned to hustling on the sidewalk of his hometown. Yep. (sighs) Ruben Valadares spent over seven months in the hospital, enduring painful skin grafts and surgeries to stay alive. He said to this day, he cannot recognize the face that greets him in the mirror. Uh. Ruben still suffers from flashbacks and nightmares from the fire, and he mourns the losses of his family and friends lost in the blaze. This is what he had to say. Oh God. Ruben Valadaris works in the boating industry, selling products to other boats in nearby waters. He says that despite everything, he tries and mostly succeeds at living a normal life. I managed to make myself a home and I have four children and a beautiful family. When Valadares was interviewed in 2015, the subject of Gonzalez's imminent parole hearing came up. Valadares said he did not believe he was remorseful no matter how many tears the man had shed and was adamant that he should never be released. For me, that man must remain in prison for the rest of his life. He does not deserve to leave. I ask the authorities to deny him probation. That person is not good for society, is a harmful individual that can represent a danger to the community. Speaking of Gonzalez, Julio lived out the remainder of his days at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. In 2015, he was eligible for his first parole hearing and impressed no one by continuing to minimize his moral culpability in the crime, claiming that the bouncer had threatened him and that he didn't know if or how many people were in the club, which everyone says was a lie because he had literally just been in there. Yeah, he's full of shit hmm In the almost 25 years he had been locked up too, he had taken no steps to better himself or prepare for life on the outside. He had rejected offers to be taught English or earn his GED. When asked what his plans would be if he were released, he could only describe living with a woman he had met on the internet, which means he just wants to go back to this situation where he was like living off of Lydia.
0: Yep, and not like it, trying to integrate it into the culture or
1: and or do anything or yep. better himself at all. The parole board decided that Gonzalez was likely to reoffend and his release would be incompatible with the welfare of society. He was denied. Good. Julio Gonzalez didn't make it long enough to clean up his act for a second parole hearing on September thirteenth, twenty sixteen. He suffered a heart attack in his cell and was declared dead shortly after. Not a soul mourned the loss. Good riddance.
0: I wonder if her his daughter ever like learned about him.
1: I don't know. I think she's just, she was still back in Cuba. I don't know whether yeah. her mother not. would tell her the truth, you know?
0: Hopefully not. Hopefully they just.
1: Hopefully they had a better life. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's so sad. This is, this is definitely one that is a a deviation from some of our usual love murders insofar as how crazy the circumstances were for all of these things to happen that killed so many people and the effect was so far reaching, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it's literally a jealous lover it's literally
1: it's the the epitome of a love murder it was a jilted lover this is i mean talk about a heartbreak that broke the hearts of millions more yeah i mean this is probably the most far-reaching crime we've we've talked about yeah we're gonna skip an conclusion today uh because it was such a heavy case but we we hope that you guys are are doing great out there and everyone's staying safe and hopefully getting vaccinated and that your 2021 is super lit, but not
0: by, like this. No, not like this. <laughs> and by this point, we're going to be so big. So pregnant. I think we will
1: be... I mean, we'll still probably have like three or four weeks left at this point when this airs. I wrote down the yeah. exact like weeks we'll be at for next week's. Um, so we'll give you an update and next week and an update an update, uh, a bump date um, next week. Um, and definitely come back for next week's because we have a super scandalous, turn of the century, crazy crime, where when I was researching it, I thought one thing the entire time. And then right at the end, I had a big surprise about the culpability of the person. So I was like, damn, this one shocked me. And it took place in like 1903.
0: So you're going to do some trickery?
1: It's it's like not even trickery because like I kind of had to figure out like with the Carrie Farver, like how I was going to tell the story so you guys would be like surprised. This one is just like straightforward. Everybody thinks the same thing. And then right at the end, you're like, oh, wait, was everything I just
0: thought a lie?
1: <laughs> Which is kind of the stories that are fun. So I'm excited to tell you guys that one. And of course, as always, if you enjoy it, um this story you know our usual stories love murder in general and me and andy uh please uh write us a review on apple podcast it's been really helping to uh move us up the charts and we've found so many new people because of that so we are so thankful to each and every one of you thank you
0: thank you thanks Have for me be- guys bye